All right, let's begin with prayer. Please stand with me. Our glorious God and Savior, we come to thee through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd of the flock. And Lord, we desire to be fed. We desire to be led into green pastures, even this evening, to feed upon thy truth and thy righteousness. We ask our Lord that thou would be glorified and exalted and that we would be edified and built up in our most holy faith. Cleanse us and wash us, Lord, of our sin as we approach thee. For thou art holy, and yet thou art a gracious and merciful God. We thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Turn with me again to John 15. We're going to be focusing upon verses 7 through 11 this evening, but let's begin with verse 1 just as, as we uh, pick up the context. <clears throat> John 15, verse 1. <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Again, the context of this passage is after the Lord Jesus had celebrated the last Passover with his disciples, had, uh, you remember, washed their feet after he had initiated, instituted the Lord's Supper, 
had revealed his betrayer, being Judas Iscariot, who was filled with by Satan and led uh, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, to, to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll get to in chapter 18. From that time in verse 31, uh, they arose, Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. And this chapter uh, is, are the words of the Lord Jesus somewhere after they left the upper room and before they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. So we don't know exactly at what point or place that this took place, but somewhere in between those two spots. So... Uh, this is a very precious portion of God's word as it relates to our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. In our last study, just by way of review, uh, Jesus explained that much fruit in our lives and bearing much fruit in our lives as Christians follows this particular pattern. It will always follow this pattern. If there is fruit in our lives, this is the pattern that Jesus says it will follow. It begins with union with Jesus Christ. We are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Then, after being united to Christ, we commune with Jesus Christ. We have communion with him. We fellowship with him uh, uh, through prayer, through the reading of his word. And then, from that point on, uh, we see the end of that process is... Again, fruit. Union with Christ, communion with Christ, fruitfulness. Now, you remove union with Christ, you remove communion with Christ, and there is no true fruit that is going to be borne by us. Um, without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And so we can't bear true fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Found in Galatians chapter 5. We cannot produce that just by our own efforts. Uh, it's produced by uh, the Holy Spirit as we are united to Christ, as we're communing and fellowshipping with Christ. That's the natural byproduct that flows from it. He produces fruit in our lives. Many professing believers, sadly, think that if they are united to Christ by way of a mere profession, that they profess faith in Christ, uh, that they don't really need to commune with Christ. Uh, that they, all they need is to have professed, uh, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and everything's taken care of. Whereas Jesus says that if we are truly united to Christ, we are going to be communing with him. There's going to be fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Um, if there's no communion in our lives at all, we don't even desire communion with Christ to spend time with the Lord Jesus. Uh, that says something about whether or not we've truly been united to Christ by faith. Because all who are united to Christ by faith will commune with Christ. And all who commune with Christ have been United to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Lord Jesus warns 
gives a very sobering warning in verse 6, which uh, we looked at last in a previous study. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. <clears throat> Lord Jesus is uh, here speaking uh, not to a group of a mixed group. He's speaking to his disciples uh, about this matter of union with Christ. Communion with Christ is illustrated by branches and a vine and bearing fruit. All of this is spoken to his, his disciples. And when Jesus utters these words that we find in verse 6, this ought to be for all of us, even as Christians, even though we know that, that if we are truly in Jesus Christ, uh, we will always be in Jesus Christ, if we are truly in Christ. But you know, the problem is that many say, Lord, Lord, um, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful works in your name and things of this nature? And Jesus says to them on that final day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. Not that I knew you once and now I don't, but I never knew you. And so when it says that if a man does not abide in me, it's simply saying that here's somebody who professed with his mouth to be a Christian, but was not truly a believer. And so there, there, was, there was outwardly perhaps those, those things that this person does, and people may have even thought, well, this person, uh, a person is uh, you know, coming to church and sitting and listening to a Bible study, listening to uh, the sermon, opens his Bible when the sermon is, is given, and yet the Lord Jesus says, um, if there is not true fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, or self-control, if that fruit isn't being produced, if there's not a, a love uh, in the heart of a person and a desire to serve the Lord Jesus with all of his heart, to love the Lord Jesus. And when we fall into sin, as we all do, and if there's no desire to repent and turn unto the Lord Jesus, these are evidences, these are, these are ought to raise questions in our minds because the evidence of a Christian is when we fall, we, want, we, we get back up, we repent. We seek God's forgiveness. We seek the forgiveness of those that we have offended. That's the kind of fruit that the Lord produces in our lives. And so when this branch is cast into the fire, uh, this is referring to, again, one who professed to be a Christian but was truly not a Christian and is cast into the fire of hell. Um, and so again... 
Uh, we do not believe the Bible teaches that one truly saved, truly trusting in Christ uh, can be cast into hell, but many profess. And that's where the, the, this whole matter is so important that we don't just uh, put our Christian life on automatic pilot and just kind of glide through. That we need to, again, uh, daily uh, seek the Lord, uh, seek His grace, His mercy, not take anything for granted, uh, but to avail ourselves of all that the Lord Jesus has given to us. You see, true Christians who hear this warning, how will they respond? They'll take it seriously. Whereas mere professing Christians listening to that kind of warning from the Lord Jesus, they'll brush it off. They'll brush the words of Jesus off. They'll ignore the words of Jesus. They'll forget the words of Jesus. Not those who are truly Christ. They'll take his words seriously. And they'll use those, that type of a warning to even move them more to follow Christ. Move them nearer to Christ. To want to please him all the more. All right. Our review is completed. Let's look at verse 7. John 15, 7. Jesus says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So Jesus once again raises the need for us as his disciples to abide in him. This is a conditional sentence, if ye abide in me. But he adds to that, and my words abide in you. We're going to look at, because in the conditional sentence you have the if clause, but then you have the then clause. If this is true, then this is true. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. But let's understand the if clause first. If ye abide in me, and again we talked a lot about what that means. Abiding in Christ means communing with Christ, dwelling, finding in Christ uh, our habitation, a home to which we flee, our refuge. Not, not, a, uh, uh, not a... A building that we're unfamiliar with, not a person that we're estranged from, that we're far from, but if we abide in Christ, we're, we're finding in Him that salvation, life, joy, peace, everything is found in Jesus Christ. But He adds, and, my, and if my words abide in you. You see, we can only truly abide in Christ and commune with Jesus Christ when his words also abide in us and commune with us. Communion with Jesus Christ is not a, this some kind of a mystical, ecstatic experience that bypasses the mind. Uh, and, and again, in some churches, that's uh, what, sadly, again, uh, that's by way of these emotional experiences, they, they 
try to, and they even encourage bypassing the mind and, and simply having this emotional experience. But the Lord Jesus does not want us to bypass the mind. He's given us the mind. You see, that's why he says, and if my words abide in you. Our communion with Jesus Christ is based upon a rational communication of his words with us and our words with him. Okay, this is, this is a relationship. When we're talking about communion, it's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He communicates with us, how? Through his word. We communicate with him, how? Through prayer. And so there is a dialogue. We, we portray that dialogue uh, on the Lord's Day uh, when we have our worship service because we read and um, throughout the worship service, the scripture in, in almost every part of our worship service, there is the word of God that is coming to us. And we are responding in faith, believing. We're responding to the word of God in prayer, uh, in our meditation as we're listening. And so that's what worship is. Worship is not simply uh, one individual uh, speaking and the other individual you know, tuning out. That's, that's again, not communion. Uh, that's not a relationship. A relationship is where there is mutual communication. It's what a marriage is. It's what a friendship is. There, there, there's mutual communication. There's communion with one another. Communication, communion, you see, they come from the same root to commune. Um, and so we, when there is no communication, there's no communion. When there is communion, there is communication. <clears throat> You see, again, communion with Jesus Christ is not like Eastern meditation in which one in Eastern meditation empties his mind. That's the goal. Uh, empty your mind uh, in Eastern religions. That's uh, what they seek to do um, and get into this, this state of, of a mind emptied losing consciousness or repeating some mantra over and over and over again. But rather, communion with Jesus Christ, rather than emptying the mind, communion with Jesus Christ is filling the mind. Filling the mind with the words of Jesus as found in Holy Scripture, in the Old and New Testaments. Filling our minds with his word. Now we know that certainly in the, in the New Testament, the words of Jesus are there in his ministry. And then the apostles were commanded by the Lord Jesus to teach 
what Jesus had commanded them to teach, so the, the rest of the New Testament also is filled with the words of Jesus. But do we understand as well that the Old Testament, as the Old Testament likewise gives to us the words of Jesus. Sometimes, again, we make that kind of a, a distinction, uh, and I think that we ought not to make that distinction because one will find <clears throat> this phrase used 92 times in the Old Testament. And maybe you've never thought about this or thought about it in this way. This phrase is used 92 times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying. Now, perhaps you've only thought of that in terms of, you know, God, um, the Father, coming and, and speaking. But let me ask you, who is the word? Who does the New Testament say the word is in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. When we see and, and read, and the word of the Lord came unto them, saying, I submit to you that that's the Lord Jesus coming and speaking to his prophets in the Old Testament. So that again, the Old Testament is filled with the words of Jesus, just as the New Testament is filled with the words of the Lord Jesus. And so when we read in verse 7, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, let us understand that, that the words of the Lord Jesus that abide in us have to do with all of the Bible, all of Scripture, abiding in us just as we commune with him he communes with us by way of his word. And dear ones, if, if the words of Christ, if the teaching of Christ, if the commandments of Christ, if the promises of the Lord Jesus that are found in Scripture do not find a welcomed place and a welcomed home in our lives, in which to abide, how can we say that we're abiding in Christ? If, if his words don't find a welcome place in our lives, how can we say that we're abiding in him? Because Jesus cannot be separated from his words. We can't, we can't say, I'll take Jesus, but not his words. If we're going to take Jesus, we must take his words. His words found in the Old Testament, his words found in the New Testament. We cannot exalt Jesus if we do not exalt his words. We cannot obey Jesus 
if we do not obey his words. We cannot love Jesus if we do not love his words. And we cannot commune with Jesus if we do not commune with his words. That's the connection Jesus is making here. Then we move in verse 7 to the then part of the sentence, if you abide in me and if my words abide in you. Now we come to the then part of the sentence. Doesn't in the, in the text, it doesn't say then, but this is the then part of the sentence. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. <clears throat> and so this is basically saying, if this is true, that ye abide in me and my words abide in you, then this is also true. This will be yours. What will be yours? Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. This is uh, very similar to what Jesus says in John 14, verses 13 through 14. We have already studied this in past study, but there you, you will recall that the Lord Jesus says, and, whosoever, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. And at that time, we sought to make clear that these are not unconditional <clears throat> or unqualified promises. Um, the, this is not, a, in, in essence, a blank check, that uh, whatever we want, well, Jesus says, just fill in the, the amount, <laughs> and it's yours, uh, as, 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 as if that's what all of Scripture teaches. Again, um, in order to understand any particular passage of Scripture, what, what is the infallible rule of interpretation? Scripture. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, if scripture itself is infallible, then we in need an infallible key to understand it. And what is the infallible key? The Bible itself. Okay, so the Bible interprets the Bible. I don't interpret the Bible. You don't interpret the Bible. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, interprets the Bible. And we go to other places when it, we find a passage like that whatsoever you will ask and I will give it to you. Uh, again, no qualifications? Well, that's again why we go to a place like 1 John 5.14. 1 John 5.14, which we have already considered, but that says... <clears throat> And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, notice, according to his will, he heareth us. If we ask anything, now there, the, there is the qualification. John is the author of the, the letter that we just read from in 1 John 5.14. John is the, the human author, not the, the, the divine author, it's the Holy Spirit. The human author is John 
and he is the one that the Holy Spirit used to write the Gospel of John. And so here um, we find the condition. If you ask anything according to his will, uh, then he heareth us, and we have what we ask. <clears throat> but even in the text, in John 15, there's the condition, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the condition. Then ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done for you. What Jesus is basically saying is that when we are communing with the Lord Jesus, when his word abides within us, and we understand, therefore, his will, because his word abides within us, then we are going to pray, and then we are going to ask for things that please him. Uh, we're not going to be pursuing mere selfish desires. We're going to be praying according to the will of God that is found in Scripture. So when our will is agreeable to God's will, then we will have what we ask. Does God always answer our prayers when we come to him through faith in Jesus Christ? I, I believe he does, always. It may not be, always be the answer we want. He may answer us, yes, what we have prayed for, or he may say, no, it's not good for you. Or he may say, wait. But he always answers our prayers when we come to him through Jesus Christ. Paul prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 would be removed. It says that it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. He prayed three times and God said to him, basically, stop praying. I'm not going to remove the thorn in the flesh because my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, that was an answer to Paul's prayer. It wasn't maybe the answer that he wanted to hear, but it was an answer to his prayer. And Paul was content. Paul was content with the answer that God gave to him. We don't find Paul whining and crying and, and uh, feeling sorry for himself. He says, to the contrary, he rejoices in infirmities like this because then he has the opportunity to see God's power made perfect in his weakness. God has a purpose God always has a reason for his yeses, his noes, and his weights. And it usually, I mean, it's always something that glorifies him, but it's usually, usually as well to teach us something.
to teach us in the school of Christ where we all need to be instructed, where we all need to grow daily in Christ, depending more upon him, leaning more upon him. The nearer that we live to Jesus Christ and the closer our communion with Jesus Christ is, the more effectual will our prayers be because we are praying according to his words, according to his will. We're praying the nearer we are, the more communion we have with him. And that communion, as we noted in a previous study, has to do with our time spent with Christ every day. Um, that special time our time spent with our families in prayer and reading his word every day. And even throughout the day. Um, if we start the day with Jesus Christ in prayer, reading his word, uh, do we just forget about him uh, the rest of the day? Uh, again, Part of what it means to be in communion with Christ, you know, you remember Paul says, pray without ceasing. Uh, how do we do that? Well, again, it's simply, I think, illustrating that uh, to us, our communion with, with Christ. Not that necessarily, and I don't think that this is what it means, that every second of the day we're thinking about Jesus Christ, but it, throughout the day, we have those times where, you know, there's something that happens or, um, you know, for which we're thankful. Something um, that is a trial comes our way and we lift that up uh, to the Lord in prayer. And so, you know, the events, the people, the circumstances that we face uh, are all opportunities to take that to the Lord Jesus. That's being in communion with him throughout the day. Uh, not just at those special appointed times where we spend time with Christ um, each day, but throughout the day. And then family worship and our Lord's Day worship um, as well. Verse 8 <clears throat> Jesus says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So in bearing much fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words, and in our behavior, the Lord Jesus says two things that will uh, happen as we bear fruit. First is that it will glorify the Father, which is the chief end of man. The Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so the first thing that bearing fruit does, it it glorifies God, it glorifies the Father. The second thing Jesus says that bearing fruit 
does is that it evidences, it, prov- it becomes uh, an evidence that we are his disciples. Our fruit basically becomes the means by which we have assurance ourselves that we belong to Christ because he's producing fruit in us. But it also becomes an evidence to those who know us and our families, those who know us best and how we react, how we respond uh, uh, within our families by way of our, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds and relating to one another. So fruit that we have becomes an evidence to ourselves that we belong to Christ and it also becomes an evidence to others. Jesus said concerning false prophets, how will you know them? Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. Um, They won't have the fruit. Uh, True prophets or true ministers of Jesus Christ will bear the fruit, the fruit of of sound doctrine and the fruit of a a Christian life, Christian marriage. One thing that happens as a result of bearing fruit for Jesus Christ is that not everybody necessarily likes to see the fruit in our lives. And when there is the fruit of Jesus Christ being born in our lives, sometimes that leads to persecution. Sometimes that leads to ridicule. Sometimes that leads to not being able to have the same relationship maybe we used to have when we were in the world ourselves with certain people. It may mean that some of those relationships are not just, they're not like they used to be because of the fruit of Jesus Christ in our life. Not because we're holier than thou, not because we're uh, looking down our noses at others, but uh, those who um, are not interested uh, in uh, Christ whether they're professing Christians and they simply want to live their own life and say, I'm a Christian, or whether they're just very worldly people, um, something about a very fruitful Christian offends them. They do not want to really be that close, and so it will affect relationships. So let's recognize again, um, that doesn't mean there's not fruit in your life, because at, t- at times, when people don't want to be around us, if we are again really manifesting the fruit of Jesus Christ, it may mean um, that they are offended by the fruit. And we have to examine our own life that we're not offending people by way of being arrogant or uh, self-righteous and that type of thing for sure. But again, Uh, We've probably all experienced that to some degree. Verse 9, Jesus says, 
As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Now here is an absolutely amazing statement by the Lord Jesus. Words that we really cannot fully explain on my part to you, nor for you to fully understand or for me to fully understand. How can we possibly fully understand the infinite love that the Father has for the Son? That's beyond our imagination and our comprehension. That love is eternal. It never had a beginning. And it will never have an end. It is a love, again, beyond measure. The, that the love that the Father has for the Son. And yet, what Jesus here declares is that it is that love that the Father has for the Son, it is that love that He has, that Jesus has for His disciples. Amazing. That same love, that eternal and infinite, unmeasurable love that the Father has for the Son is the love that the Son has for us, His people. How did he evidence that love for us? He left the glory of heaven, became a servant, flesh like our own, became fully man, though being fully God, and endured suffering and torment from his own father because he became the substitute for us to bear our sin. He bore God's wrath for us. If that isn't love, then we don't understand what love is, what the torment Jesus went through on behalf of suffering for his people, his sheep. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So when, in verse 9, our text says, Jesus says to us, continue ye in my love. It literally means abide ye in my love. In other words, Jesus commands us to make our home in him, commune and delight in his love for us. Regardless of how we have been treated by others, in following the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus assures us here that we will always find in him a loving heart that comforts us, that encourages us, that strengthens us, no matter what we face. Abide in his love. Make your home in his love. 
the love that the Father has for the Son, the love that is evidenced in His going to the cross and suffering for you. Abide in that love. You see, as a result of the death of Jesus Christ for us, Jesus is no longer an avenging judge against us. He is an avenging judge. And all will stand before him on that final day. But he's no longer an avenging judge against those for whom he died. Us, his people. He is now a reconciled and a loving Savior that always has his arms extended unto us to flee to his mercy. He disciplines us. He chastens us, but he always loves us. That never changes. Verse 10. He says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus tells his disciples and tells us as his disciples how it is that we evidence that we're abiding in his love. How would you be able to tell uh, if someone says they love you, how would you be able to tell whether that really is true or whether it's mere words? By their actions, right? Uh, by how they treat you. That's how we evidence love, is by how um, we are treated or how we treat others. In a marriage, parent-child relationships, extended family, friends, they're just meaningless words. If, they, if, if all they are if that's all there is to it. And so likewise here, Jesus says in verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. So how, how do we evidence that we love Christ? We keep his commandments. It shows his love is revealed in our desire to keep his commandments, to please him. Not to walk as we simply want to walk, not to do merely what we want to do, but to do what he wants us to do, to please him. That's how we show and demonstrate that we truly love Christ. Rather than clinging to sinful habits, addictions that we might have, rather than enjoying and flirting with sinful temptations in our lives, we show our love for Christ by saying, I love Christ. 
I cannot continue in this particular direction. I repent, I seek thy forgiveness. And then we renew our obedience to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we demonstrate. If you keep his commandments, that's what he, what he says. So the Lord Jesus makes this connection. He's made this connection before between loving him and keeping his commandments. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's how we show. That's how we demonstrate it. Again, sadly, there are churches, professing Christians, <clears throat> that... Uh, teach and who that believe that that they are set <clears throat> set free from having to keep God's commandments that uh, uh, now that we're saved and they understand grace to mean that we're no longer bound to keep God's commandments but grace isn't given to us to no longer desire to keep God's commandments Grace is given to us in order to make us want to keep God's commandments. We're not under the law, we are under grace. That means that we are not under the, the curse and the condemnation of the law. We're under, under God's covenant of grace. His covenant of love, whereby he gives us grace so that we can, by God's grace, walk in loving obedience, not perfect, not perfectly, not sinlessly in this life, but we even are keeping God's commandments when we fall and we repent and we seek his forgiveness. That's walking in faithfulness and obedience, because we will all fall. We'll, we'll all sin in thought, word, and deed, even daily. But we are walking in faithfulness when we don't continue down that road, but rather the Spirit convicts us, we repent, we seek His forgiveness, we renew our loving obedience. And so the Lord doesn't say you're free from keeping my commandments here. He says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. <clears throat> so we are set free, not from keeping God's commandments by the death of Christ, but rather we are set free to keep Christ's commandments out of love to Christ, out of love for God. 1 John 2, 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. And then... Verse 11, 
These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So what Jesus has given to his disciples in this uh, discourse, chapter 15, up to this point, verses 1 through 10, the Lord Jesus says in verse 11, he's spoken these things that their joy, the joy of his disciples might remain and that their joy might be full, complete. Again, people are searching for joy in the world today. They're searching for contentment. They're searching for happiness. They're trying this and that. And nothing satisfies. And that's why they keep moving to the next thing because they don't find peace. They don't find contentment. They don't find satisfaction in this world and they will never do so. Solomon, the wisest mere man that ever lived, set out to try to find joy, peace, and contentment in the things under the sun. And he had all the money available to him to try everything as an experiment. And his conclusion was vanity of vanities. All is vanity under the sun. We too will be searching and continually coming up empty if we are searching for joy, contentment, and peace in this world as the source of that, of joy, peace, and contentment. God gives us many things to enjoy in this world, and we should enjoy them. But they're not the source of our joy. The source of our joy has to be Jesus Christ. Now, I say that to you who are young. I say it to myself, one who is much older. But I can look back over my life and I can say the same thing that Solomon said, it's vanity. And you will find at the end of your life the same thing. It's all vanity. If you do not seek to find your joy in Jesus Christ by communing with him, enjoying him. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What will you put? For to me to live is, what is it for you to live? A house, a car, a job, a family. Those are all good things. But you 
They cannot be your life. Jesus must be your life. Those can be parts of your life. But Jesus must be your life if you are to find true joy. Sadly, what happens in so many people's lives is is just the opposite. Jesus is a part of their life, and their life is something else. They live for something else. And Jesus is just a part of their life. Well, I can assure you, based upon Scripture and my own experience, that you won't find a true lasting joy, peace, and contentment unless Jesus is your life. David makes it very clear in Psalm 16:11, thou wilt show me the path of life. Notice what he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you want fullness of joy? Do you want pleasures forevermore? You're only going to find that in Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Christian life is not a game. We, are learn, we learn that uh, when we become serious about Jesus being our life, not simply a part of our life. Lord, we pray that uh, thy words, the words of the Lord Jesus that we have considered even this evening would find root in our lives, uh, that we would take them seriously, not brush them off, neglect them or forget them. We would meditate upon them, reflect upon them, that we would commune with thee through thy words. We ask, Lord, that thou would Bless the week, the remainder of the week that is before us, that in all of our circumstances and relationships, Lord, that we would not be mere professing Christians, but we would be, Lord, those that are bearing much fruit for Jesus Christ, and that others would observe and that fruit would evidence in our own hearts and in the lives of others of thy mighty work of grace, love in our, in our hearts and in our lives, that it, that it would draw, Lord, others unto our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.